What if all you needed to get better in every way was available at the touch of a hand or the sound of a voice or even a vibration? Let's talk about how that happens, who can do it, and where to find them. I'm John Webster, and this is The Hesitant Healer. Greetings and welcome to The Hesitant Healer. I am John Webster, The Hesitant Healer. I'm here with my trusty sidekick, Lisa Kay. Hey, how's it going? Who is diligently using her fingers on her phone to look for some information that I just asked for. So if she doesn't talk a lot at the beginning here, then it's because of that. She's doing background stuff. So today... uh, I'm going to start with, I really messed up my last podcast, and y'all don't know what I'm talking about because it didn't record, and after giving it some thought, and after Lisa and I talked for a whole 49 minutes, (laughs) and then checked the playback, and the damn thing didn't record... I figured out that maybe the universe was telling me perhaps I ought not to talk about that subject, so I'm going to let it go. This subject that we're talking about today is going to be on anatomy. Uh, What does anatomy have to do with healing? Well, quite frankly, everything in my world. So I'll tell you a little bit about the story of healing and anatomy. Uh, when I went to massage school, because I think you're all caught up on uh, working in jail and going to massage school, let me tell you that little story real quick. I went to, uh, I was tired of working in jail, right? I, I'd been working graveyard for a number of years. I hate graveyard. I don't catch up on my sleep cycles. I, I had gone through a depression and I was taking Prozac which uh, worked until it didn't work, and, and it would uh, it didn't matter whether I took it day or night, it, it just it tanked me, right? I, I could not stay awake in the middle of the night, in the middle of the jail, surrounded by inmates who I was supposed to watch cook. And I was just getting tired of it, so I, uh, I decided to go to massage school. Now, I had been wrestling with that idea for almost two years, in fact, the first time I told my Al-Anon sponsor I wanted to go to massage school, he called bullshit, and he says, why? And I told him, and he said, bullshit, and I said, why? And he said, well, if you wanted to go to massage school to help people and heal people, you would have talked about helping and healing, and what I hear is, you want to get laid. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, no! Uh, but he was not entirely wrong. I... Uh, I had some more therapy. I had some more personal healing to do. And I wrestled with the idea of that, and, and it kind of sunk in a little bit. Even then is when the, uh, when the foundation was laid for perhaps even working with the coroner's office, because I thought that was kind of a cool-sounding gig. I didn't have a problem with it like a lot of the people that I brought it up with did. So I wrestled with the idea until I wrapped my head around the fact that I really did want to learn to heal people. And somewhere in the middle of that, towards the end, actually, a school popped up where I live uh, named Hands-On Medical Massage. I liked the medical massage part. 
And so I, I checked it out. I looked in their curriculum. It was not a happy, feel-good place. They were seriously talking about anatomy and physiology and, and making people well. It was loosely affiliated, I found out after the fact, with uh, the Loma Linda Hospital out here. And they were a couple of... Um, Massage therapists, one of them had been a clinical nurse for a while, and these two ladies had started this school because they wanted to associate massage with uh, the healing arts of Loma Linda Medical. So I think they were on the right track. Uh, there were some nuances about school that were a little off-puttish, put-offish. Is there a word there? Off-putting. Off-putting. That's why we keep her around right there. Off-putting. Not to be confused with chocolate pudding or vanilla pudding. <laughs> Which are amazing. Which are amazing, but they don't heal much. Well, they could, I guess. All right. But I digress. So, uh, I went to medical massage school, paid my money, and uh, here's what that curriculum was like. I was working graveyard. I would get up at... 11 o'clock at night, take a shower, drive into Ontario, California, which was actually Rancho Cucamonga, uh, about 35, 40 minutes away, and uh, check in, go to work, work from midnight to 8 a.m. I would get off at 8 a.m. I would drive directly to Yukaipa, which was farther away than where I was living, and that was a good 45 minutes away. I would get to school by 9 a.m. after having been up all night, and we would do massage school, which if you've been to massage school, is a lot of reading and talking, and there's a lot of massage. And a lot of my massage school days on the table consisted of the following noise. <laughs> right? Because I'd been up all night. So, I mean, I was already in a daze. I was sleep deprived and I'm trying to learn this stuff. Now, I would not say that I have a, a learning problem. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for again? Uh, Deficiency? You no, you don't have a learning disability. Learning I think you, disability. And I think that in the uh, the verbiage of current educational uh, vernacular, labels, yes, vernacular. I get a word in there. Ooh, we don't call it learning disability. We just call it uh, differently abled. So I think that whatever you are in in that time frame, abled. it was learning disability. Anyway, I I, I am a little ADD, and I do have. Uh, issues uh, learning when I'm in a, a, a quote-unquote normal classroom. I learned in the Army to sit in the front row and to have a pen and paper or some kind of play toy because I'm a tactile learner and I have to do multiple things at once. Um, when you're sleep-deprived, that doesn't necessarily work. So a lot of stuff was not necessarily clicking. Um, and as mentioned previously, I think I, I had already learned about Reiki, right? And I was already kind of doing Reiki and, and learning about energy healing. And uh, these ladies at this school wanted nothing to do with energetic healing or Eastern medicine. And they made that very clear. They were Western medicine, Christian based. And so a lot of modalities that I was interested in were not allowed and were taboo subjects at this particular school. So I would get there at 9 a.m. We would learn the curriculum, and, and there were different types of, of massage modalities that were being taught. But when we got to AP, anatomy, physiology, uh, my brain clicked off. It just did not work. And uh, 
I, I, here's how it went. When we'd get to something like the acromion process, and I'd look at the bone, and I'd think, what a stupid name. I don't understand why that can't just be called the pointy end of the shoulder. Why does it have to be the, called a, what is a process? Why, why do they call this stuff tissue when it's skin? I, I would get into these diatribes in my head, and by the time I was done, they were four bones and muscles away, and I'd missed a whole bunch of stuff. And I just didn't get it. It just, anatomy, when you speak English, doesn't make sense if you've never learned it before. So, uh, the first test comes up, and I went completely blank. Like, like seriously, the page just blurred into white, and I had nothing. And I, I got up, I think I was 39 years old, I got up in tears of frustration and and um you remember in officer and a gentleman when richard gear towards the end of the movie and uh what's her name what's her name what's her deborah name? winger deborah winger the voice of et look it up when deborah winger is trying to tell him that she loves him and he like he like struggles away and struggles away and he says i don't want you to love me i don't want anybody to love me it was kind of like that right <laughs> And, and I was out the door, and the, the nice teacher, who I got along with the best, grabbed me and said, what are you doing? I'm like, I just failed a test, and I don't understand this, and anatomy makes no sense. Right? And she said, oh, honey, sit down for a second. And uh, a pivotal teacher moment in my life, teacher-student moment, where she said, look, you already got the important stuff down. You have compassion. You know how to work with people. You have good management skills and time management skills. We can get you through anatomy. Just stick with it. And I'm like, <gasps> okay. <laughs> and so uh, I stuck with it. And here's what happened. Because I am a tactile. Visual. Visual. I need colors. Kind of learner. And I got the coloring book. There's a great musculoskeleton coloring book out there that you can color all the muscles. And I got pencils, colored pencils in class. And when we got to a muscle or, or a tendon or a nerve or whatever that I didn't understand, I'd color the whole damn thing. And then I'd highlight and underline the words. And then I'd get a real body and I'd put the coloring book on their tummy and I'd touch the thing and I'd say it out loud. And I learned anatomy that way and it started to stick here's another important little piece of information from the same teacher she's working on somebody one day and i went oh what's that muscle she goes I, I don't know she goes you know you learn to touch this stuff and after a while you don't even remember what the names are and i'm like well okay then <laughs> that's cool so i learned that kind of stuff i've also mentioned previously that that a lot of my friends that I was working on and people I was working on were having, not all of them, but a, you know, some, more, more than, than regular, were having emotional displacements on the table. I'd work on them and they'd start crying. And it, it was the first introduction to healing touch uh, that could work on the emotional aspects of a human being as well. Why is it when I touch somebody, they, can, they cry? Oftentimes, to to their own surprise, how's that possible? 
So today we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're going to talk about the journey uh, that I followed to get to where I'm at today to do that. So uh, I got the coloring book. I got the anatomy book. I learned how to touch the muscles and where the muscles connected, insertion, origin, origin, insertion, which is important when you're learning, right? If I get somebody new in and they want me to teach them, they got to learn the basics, right? You, you got to pay your dues. You got to do the stuff that's going to get you to where I'm at if you want to get to where I'm at. And to do that, you got to learn the basics. You got to learn Swedish. You got to learn deep tissue. You got to learn effleurage. You got to learn trigger point therapy. All of that stuff, you have to know what it is and you have to kind of know it cold before you can get up the next level. It doesn't mean you can't learn other stuff, but which is what I was doing. But a lot of times, um, something would happen, and I wouldn't understand it, and I would find a book, and this is where I get kind of weird. I'd be walking through a library, or I'd go through some mystical bookshop or whatnot, and all of a sudden, I'd be stopped in my tracks and look left and put my finger on a book, and it would be a book I was looking for kind of thing, right? Trust the universe. Trust your intuition. Trust your feelings, Luke. Right? So, um, let's talk about intuition while we're here. What started happening was I would have these thoughts, and these thoughts would be in the form of touch this, go to that, look at that, what do you think about that? And I'd be like, I'm working on this thing, right? So, I'll, I'll give you the cranial sacral story. The cranial sacral story was, I want to say Thori. Let's just get that out of the way. Thori, Thori, Thori. The cranial sacral, there it is, Thori. It's easier to go L to TH. The cranial sacral story is that when you put hands on the back of the cranium, when you're doing the vault holds, and you're getting out of the way and you're only applying five grams of pressure and you're listening and you are neutral and you're allowing that body to link with your body so that you can facilitate the healing of that particular body, oftentimes you will get messages. Now, an upludger and cranial sacral, they, they teach an entire class on dialoguing, which is talking with what they call the inner physician, which everybody has. Whether you want to call that God or spirit or, or the universe or your own head, whatever you want to call it, I believe that it's a very real thing. If you are a mother, if you are a parent, you can feel your child, you can hear your child, you can listen to your child when they hurt 100% of the time, whether they're in the room or across the country, right? It's a thing. It was described to me best this way by my therapist one time where she put her pen down on her, her paper and said, look, birds are known to mate for life. They have taken and done experiments where they've split them up to different continents, South America, North America, and they find each other again and again and again. Do you think that God put that kind of radar on birds and didn't put it in us? <laughs> and I went, oh my God, that makes so much sense, right? Uh, here's another example. And this I heard when I went to a thing called Summit Expedition when I was 14 years old my freshman year. 
uh, up in the the high Sierras with uh, uh, some hippies who were mountain guides and ten other fourteen year old boys. It was uh, it was not like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> it sounds like it. It, it was a lot cooler, uh, and there was a lot less nakedness. Um, but Wayne. Uh, one of the guys, I mean, every night uh, we'd read a little book or they'd tell a little story or they'd have some kind of insight into life. It was a pretty magical thing. Uh, we read The Little Prince, right? You know, I mean, those kind of things. And and it was the 70s. So, you know, uh, there was some hippy-dippy stuff going on. Were you wearing fringe and tie-dye? Uh, no, it was Levi's in really dirty T-shirts with long hair. So thanks for asking, though. <laughs> So this guy, he tells this story one time. He says this old Indian chief and his his young grandson are, are get off the plane and they're walking down the sidewalk in New York City. And, you know, picture the scene. People walking left and right, nobody looking at each other, dark coats. It's Everybody's bundled up and there's a hustle and bustle of beeps and taxis and whirring and swirring and just lots of noise. And all of a sudden the Indian chief, he stops, he says, hold on. And the grandson stops. He says, wait, wait. And he looks around and he looks down and he reaches down and he picks up a cricket. And he holds the cricket between his two hands and he holds it up to his ear with the cricket sound, right? And the grandson says, how in the world did you hear that? And he pulls out a silver dollar and he flips it in the air and it lands on the sidewalk, making the silver dollar sidewalk sound. <laughs> And everybody stops and turns around and looks down. And he says to his grandson, you hear what you want to hear, mm -hmm. and you hear what you're trained to hear. And, I, you know, just tidbits like that. This is what Summit Expedition was, right? So why was I talking about that? Listening, intuition. intuition. Thank you, Lisa Kay. That's, again, that's why Lisa Kay is here. So intuition becomes that part of your body which wants to hear what the other body is saying if you want to heal it and they want to be healed. But it came in the form of a lot of questioning myself and thinking I was crazy at first. So I had already learned to do this through massage, but when I went to cranial sacral therapy and, and they talked about listening techniques and listening to what the inner physician said... A lot of times it went like this. Lady comes in with a left shoulder problem. I'm working on her left shoulder. I get out of the way. I go to my quiet, happy place and let my hands do their work. And I would hear, check the right hip. And I'd be like, no, I'm doing the left shoulder. Because she came in with a left shoulder problem. And I'd get out of my way, and I'd get quiet, and I'd go neutral, and my hands would be working on the shoulder, and I would hear, check the left hip. And I'd be like, you don't really understand. It's the left shoulder. I'm not going to the right hip. Meanwhile, my eyes are gazing over because now they're on board. They're like, hey, dude, look at the left hip. The left hip's not doing anything, you understand. It's just laying there like a hip does. But after a while, you hear the voice again check the right hip and my eyes are looking at it and you kind of maybe see a pulsing it, i don't know it doesn't make sense it's kind of like heat rising out of a out of a out of a heavy sidewalk and and it's like okay okay fine fine right in my head i say and i'd get up and i'd roll over and i'd go down and reach into the right hip and the freaking shoulder would just come unwound 
And the patient would go, oh, how did you know? And I'd be going, because I'm a fucking genius. But the reality was the body knew. Right? Bessel van der Kolk. The body keeps the score. There's books written on this. There's brilliant people out there finally getting to the bottom of how this happens and why our bodies are built this way. And it came to me intuitively. And time and time and time and time again, when this happens, after a while, you cannot excuse it as being crazy. You cannot excuse it as coincidence. What you begin to find out is that you believe that this is the way we were designed and this is how healing is supposed to happen and this is the way shit works when we do this kind of work. And I began to trust in the intuition. And as I began to trust in the intuition, as I listened to the voice and just did it on the first time without questioning it, then what was left was, why did that work? And I'd have to find a book or an anatomy book or another practitioner or an anatomist who could teach me why pulling on the right hip releases the left shoulder, right? So I was kind of in the middle of doing that because I'd been on about uh, eight years at this point. I think 2006 is when I graduated massage school. Still working for the sheriff department. I got out of jail on or about 2013-ish. Um, I was ready to quit because I had had enough, and I, I fell into a lateral position at a, uh, at a police station that was still run by the sheriff department I was working for. And in addition to community service work, which it turned out I was really good at, and uh, community service liaison, uh, I also got to do forensic work and fingerprinting, which was wicked cool, crime scene investigation stuff, which was wicked cool. Um, and I got to go to my first autopsy for our car accident, right? Which was wicked cool, right? I didn't freak out. I loved it, right? Oh my god. And this is this is this is day 1, right? With looking at a dead body that's that's got a lot of stuff kind of visible to the human eye. And that was my first taste of that that morgue and I I enjoyed it. And uh, I think I got to see one more. And one day, I'm at home, the wife is sitting on the couch over there and uh, I'm on the computer just tooling around on the computer and I see a call to therapists for a class in San Francisco that is three weeks long and it is a human dissection class put on by a guy named Gil Headley, who I had never heard of. What happened was I felt like I'd been unzipped from the inside out and tears rolled down my eyes. I didn't even know I was crying. And my wife's like, what just happened? I'm like, ah, I think I have to go to this class. She says, what is it? I'm like, you know, I'm an ugly crier. And I'll, I'll try and talk through it too. So I, it bubbles out, you know. But I got this thing out and I read it to her. And, and she's like, and God bless my wife. This is, this is one of the reasons I married her, one of the many. She says, well, let's get the money together and, uh, and see if you can go. Because at the time, I was fortunate enough to work for a county department where I had a crap load of vacation. When I worked for restaurants, I did not. Right. So I, I could take tons of vacation. I could take three weeks off and still get paid. 
and and you know, I mean, uh, one of the biggest blessings I had in this this learning curve of mine was that I worked for the county and I could do this. One of the other things that happened is you have to be vetted and you have to go through an interview with this guy. And I got semi accepted, and then I got a call from Gil. And he said, tell me about yourself. And I told him about myself and, and that I'd been a chef. And he kind of giggled. And I remember very distinctly, he said, you know, the funny thing about this kind of work is that uh, he goes, I've had doctors that have come in and they've been absolutely horrible. He goes, and I've had people like you who are chefs who understand muscles and knives and they're fantastic dissectors, which made sense to me. You know, as a chef of 20 years uh, plus... I, I, I've dissected muscle. I've cut up whole halves of beef and, and filleted fishes and taken bones out and pulled shit tracks out of shrimp and all the things that we take for granted when we eat stuff, right? Gil told me I was in and I was accepted this class. I believe it was in April. Uh, everybody kind of stays in the same hotel, so you're kind of hanging out with a lot of people. There were some people who all... Uh, stayed uh in the same place uh i think there was one house that had four women in it and there was another one that had a couple women in it and somebody had a friend downtown anyway i get to this place i felt very alone a lot of these people knew each other and and you're all locked in the hallway before they open up the lab and uh and i sat alone while a lot of people hugged and kissed and said hi because they hadn't seen each other and this was clearly a community of people who knew each other and i was an outsider and um when the doors opened, it turns out there were 12 cadavers. We broke up into persons of four per table and uh, people you don't know. And, uh, and then there's a ritual that happens, which is understanding, deeply understanding that these people gave their lives for you to do this at this class. This is what donating your body to science looks like, should look like, right? We were not allowed to uncover them. We were taught the reverence of death. We were taught the reverence of unveiling a cadaver and looking at it not like it's a piece of meat and not like it's your personal cutting, learning cadaver, that this was a living, breathing human being with a history and a story who walked among us, and they did this so that you could learn. It's a big, important deal to get that first. And then in this class, once you unveil, you take a breath and, and you, you take it in and you accept and give the reverence to this person that you've been gifted and then uh we did a couple of exercises just to see the 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 humanness of this cadaver right uh one of the ones one of the ones that was a little smaller in statue we all gathered around and there were four or five of us that grabbed her and held her up so she was upright because when you look at a a dead body laying on a slab you're kind of preconditioned to see that as a dead body laying on a slab. When you stand that up and they're looking at you like they were in real life, your head goes in a whole different direction. Your head sees the human that they were. Your head gets the reverence that should be given 
to this gift that has been been given to you. And and that really that really hit home for me when we did that. That was a, a big deal because I got to see and got to feel what that was. Being one of the new guys in the room, I I was learning. You know, you got to learn how to hold a scalpel, which was not a big deal for me. But I mean, they, the first day we're walking you through the basics, right? Skin and and examination and curiosity and don't be in a hurry. We got seven days here, and these are embalmed cadavers, so they're not going to bleed out and they're not going to rot. And there's a heavy smell of formaldehyde. Uh, Gil had several helpers. There was Julian Baker there, and uh, Sally Thurman was there, and and I think uh, Christy was there. There were there were three or four helpers that had been with him for a long time. And then there were several people. Uh, my friend Christine Anderson had been with him from the beginning. I think she's even on the on the first video, the uh, What's the Fuzz video, right? And I will, when I'm, when I'm done talking here, maybe if we have liner notes or something, we'll make sure that all Gil's information gets here because this is, if you're interested in this, it's not a thing you should miss. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more. But the, this class, uh, at the table... I was with uh, Nancy and Carla and oh, Loren. Nancy is from the East Coast and does a thing called Mechanical Link. Loren was a book writer and uh, did yoga and Pilates and movement stuff. And uh, Carla also is a Pilates person. And I cannot tell you, I think all four of us were newbies. I don't think any of us had ever done this before. We had a female form. Uh, it was clear she had had heart surgery because there was a huge scar between her breastplate. And um, I will stop there as far as what happens uh, because I don't want to give it away and because uh, the class has the right to be the class. But I will share with you some interesting tidbits that happened during the class and things that I did see. Having been prepped for the reverence, once you start doing this, the reverence becomes just embedded in you, where you truly understand that this is a gift and that not everybody gets to do this gift. And that because there were so many of them in the room, we had the benefit of going and touching and looking at a lot of different cadavers with a lot of different things. In these classes, at that time... Primarily, I've been told that if you're going to get a cadaver, uh, universities on the West Coast give theirs to the East Coast and universities on the East Coast give theirs to the West Coast so that you have no chance or very little chance of bumping into somebody you may have known. Having said all that, the University of Texas is usually where everybody gets their cadavers from when you purchase them. And... Uh, you do not get a family history. You do not get a, uh, uh, you might get a cause of death and you might get an age, but that's it. And Gil does not share those with you until the very end. So you truly are exploring and you're doing a lot of reverse engineering of understanding what or who this person might have been. Can we just kind of go over that whole purchasing of bodies? Because that sounds a little weird. So, from our understanding, because we've we've sort of uh, danced around being a part of this community, we've we've hosted classes before as a corporation. So, if I pass away, and uh, I have told 
or I have signed or I have made known my intent to let my body be used for science. Let's say I, I pass away tomorrow um, and I have told everyone that that's what I want to do, then my body will go to University of Texas or uh, if it were here in Southern California, perhaps Loma Linda or one of those sort of organizations. Um, the organization takes on the quote-unquote burden of preparing my body to be used uh, as a uh, as a uh, instrument to learn from. So they will embalm my body. Uh, they will make sure that my body is shipped in a way that it can still be used, right? Because if you're coming from Texas to Colorado or Texas to San Francisco, that's a big deal, right? Getting something there. Um, so the institution that took my body as a donation has has uh, sort of taken on the cost of embalming and of transport and all of that. And so if I'm going to hold a class, I'm going to have to reimburse the institution for those costs. So when we say purchase a body, it's really not purchasing a body. It is really reimbursing the institute that took on the body in the first place. A very important thing to know. So some of the anecdotes that came out of this, uh, I will tell you there was one, and we get to name them. Everybody got to name their own cadaver. I will leave those names out. One of the tables next to us had a noise coming out of it around day two or three. It was some kind of alarm. Do, 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 do. Uh, when we finally got in there, when we, not me, but the table that had them, uh, what they found was a, a paint pump, a medical pump that the battery had run out. And this, this alarm went off seven minutes to the hour, every hour for the entire week. Oh and so one of the things that we did as a class was every time that thing went off, we would put our scalpels down and we would stretch. Right, it became a community event, and it was a, a thing that we thanked that donor for for reminding us that you need to take a little bit of time when you're working so hard. Right, I being a former chef and being an artist and being very curious, when we got down to the adipose layer, wanted to see what it was like to take off an entire skin, or at least the adipose layer, and I was graciously allowed by my classmates and by Gil to attempt to take off the entire adipose layer, the fat layer, if you will, of our cadaver. And we were able to do it in one full skin so that when we pulled it off, what you had was this 85-pound fat suit that looked like the, the form that we had originally bumped into. Now, what I like to tell people when I'm working on them, especially um, if I get somebody that's a little nervous, if I get somebody that's hesitant to my touch, if I get somebody that uh, is clearly not in their body, I have a little uh, program that I go through uh, with touch. And I would put my hands underneath their, their the small of their back, just above their sacrum, and on their belly, just in between their belly button and their, and their pubic bone. And I will go verbally layer by layer by layer by layer and have them come with me in their mind's eye and feel energetically until we get all the way down and, and hands are almost touching. But when I get to the adipose layer, I will always regurgitate what Gil taught us in that class when we got down to the adipose layer. 
by now it's i don't know day three day four maybe day two and a half day three day four and uh the skin is all gone, and what we have is a cadaver with adipose, right, with a fat layer. This yellowish, greasy, globular uh, fat matrix that's leaking formaldehyde, right? And he, he stopped us and said, look, I want you to stop and look at this. I want you to see that what I think of this is that it's an antenna. This is the form that the outside world sees to you, sees of you. This is what looks like you. If I cut all your skin off, it's still going to look like you. You're going to look yellow, but it's still going to look like you. The body shape, the form of who we are is in this layer. And it's also the layer that you project out and what you want the outside world to see of you. Now, genetics is part of it, sure. But this layer, he says, is, is an antenna. This is what absorbs from outside. This is what projects from inside. This is the antenna. And interestingly enough, in Western medicine, and I have been in dissections where doctors have come in and say, uh, that's the first thing we cut out, right? I can't tell you how many things are in this layer that I have found over my time in doing dissections, and it's an important layer. Yet in, in Western medicine, especially surgical medicine, it's the first thing that gets cut out. In plastic surgery, it's the biggest thing that gets cut out, right? It, it's a thing that we use for protection. It's a thing that we use to engage with. It's a thing that we use to block things in when we're hit. I mean, it's a pretty important layer. And I don't think the full functioning of this layer has been discovered yet. But there are a lot of things just under the skin that are needed and are used on an energetic level. Another thing I got to see was one... Uh, one of the cadavers was riddled with cancer. I've heard that word several times prior to this, but when you see what riddled with cancer looks like, it's horrific. And it's scary. And it's, wow, you can't believe a body could be that diseased, right? One of the wonderfully beautiful things about Gil's class when he talked about it was, I want you to look at these bodies. He says, these are, these are the refused bodies. Well, what do you mean? He says, well... Generally, when medical students are looking for uh, uh, bodies, they're going to use the best-looking ones that don't have disease because they need to get in there and see what a healthy body looks like. He says, and invariably, uh, they'll group up four or five of them for the test, and let's say this week we're doing the forearm. Usually, one of them cuts better than the rest, so four of them take notes and one of them cuts up, and they cut the skin out and they flap it out and they put pins in it with little with little flags on the pins and they they name all the little parts of it and everybody learns what those parts are and they move on to the next thing. He goes, and that's anatomy for doctors. Now, it's more extensive than that, sure, in the anatomy lab. But for the most part, they're using the best possible cadavers they can get. So the leftovers are the ones that go to these ancillary classes like Gill's. And he says, give them to me. These are the beautiful people. Right. So those those ones that go to the medical schools are for the most part not not horrifically overweight. Nope. And uh, probably not riddled with cancer. Nope. And uh, probably not uh, as, like died of old age kind of thing. Nope. Right. 
Or if they did, they died of more natural causes. Correct. But there aren't a ton of surgeries in there or there aren't a ton of, of hardware in there, that kind of thing. You know, we we got obese and, and lung cancer and heart disease and and a lot of stuff, and right? Pain pump that's going off pain every pump hour. That's going. That guy was huge. We we kind of thought he might have been a linebacker in real life. He was a huge, huge person. So, um, our benefit is we get to see this stuff, right? We're not doctors. We don't work on this stuff, but we are body therapists, and we do feel this stuff, and they they help us reverse engineer healing because we've seen what the disease looks like, right? So. Um, pretty interesting stuff, right? And then he had several uh, uh, TVs up. There were some video cameras. And if you didn't want to cut or got tired of cutting, you could look at the video cameras while he was speaking because he had like a level R mic and you could watch uh, the best of the best on TV while they, they worked on their cadaver as well. But you could also take a break and go from point to point to point to point. Um and we get all the way down to bones, and then the last day is kind of you know special projects. Somebody wants to see the heart. Somebody wants to see the kidneys. Daphne did an entire brain and spinal cord, right? And and it was it was a spiritual thing, right? It was a thing to to behold because it's not a thing that anybody gets to see on a regular basis. And even people who do this kind of work never get to see a full laminectomy like that, right? So uh, it was it was a life-changing event for me. When I got to touch and cut and examine and play with and move all the things on the inside that I've been touching on the outside for 10 years, it, it changed my world, right? It, it just lit me up completely. And so I became a big believer in anatomy at a level that most people don't get to see. And it, it really was an amazing class. And I, Gil Headley is one of my favorite teachers in the whole world. That guy's done a service to mankind, let me tell you. So, I have a question. Yes, Lisa. So, you shared how you learned best uh, when you were in massage school by coloring the little coloring sheets. Yep. And we've all seen those, or many of us have seen those in biology and anatomy and physiology, and they're very pretty, and they're very, uh, the muscle starts here, and it ends there, and... uh, the muscles are all one color and the tendons are all another color. So, can you tell us um, the difference between perhaps what we see in an anatomy book and what you actually see when you open up a body? I would love to. And I'll tell you just like this. Here's Gil in the class. Hey, 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 look at this thing. Look at this thing I found. You see this? Do you see this connection right here between this and this? Go find a book, because there's lots of books in these labs. Go pick any book off the shelf and see if you can find it in the book. It doesn't exist, right? And we're going to talk more about this in part two of this talk, because we've almost run out of time. But I will say this. If you get the chance to go to any kind of anatomy dissection as a body worker, as a body movement worker, as a lover of anything human, and you're interested and think this will help you, I say scrape up the money however you can, find the time however you can, 
and go find the teacher however you can and do the class because it will change your life. It will change the way you see things and it will make you a better human and appreciate the body that you have and that you've been given. I believe that's all we got time for today. Today was all Gil Headley and his three-week class, right? And and I think we're going to put in the liner notes um, how to get a hold of him. His name is gilheadley.com, and you can find a website. You can pay to get into his website and see his videos. He's got a vast library, and uh, he also sets up his classes for the year, which are up now. Um, and interestingly enough, he is currently, right now this minute, in a lab in Colorado Springs, which we will talk about in the next episode, um, totally dissecting the entire spinal cord and the nervous system. It's only been done, I'm going to say, 15, 16 times in human existence where they have them and still have them. What he's doing now is filming and documenting And I believe it's the first time ever it's been done. And a great many of my friends from that 2014 class have been there helping him since January. He's probably got another four months left. And uh, hang on to your hats, folks, because when he's done with this thing, I think it's going to change the anatomy world forever. So we're going to sign off for now. We'll see you at the next one where we will talk about the fabulous Julian Baker and friends and uh, some other people that I've met along the way to do some dissection classes and maybe even a special announcement about my very own. Until then, say goodbye, Lisa. Goodbye, Lisa. Have a wonderful day. Behave yourselves, huh? Bye.